Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we This is God's word. You can sit down. Let's ask the Lord for his help now. Lord, as we look to your word, we trust that you are instructing us in all things necessary for salvation in Christ. And we trust that because you told us that's what your word is for. So would you now... As I preach, preach a better word from your word than I have prepared. And would you show us Christ? Fill our hearts with satisfaction in Christ. and Help us to follow him faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. What we have here in chapter 26, more parallels to the events from Abraham's life, then we really have time to get into today. Just for starters, just as a cursory, as you overlook just these first 16 verses, there's there's a famine, but it's not the same famine from chapter 12 in Abraham. There is sojourning in Gerar and a king named Abimelech, 
But this is different than when Abraham was there. God is going to repeat to Isaac all of the various blessings and promises that he made to Abraham. We are going to see Abraham's sister, Fib, repeated with the same sinful fearfulness. And we'll, we'll see Isaac get rich, just as his father did, with flocks and herds and servants. We even have disputes over wells. And we'll get more into that next week. All of these things happen to Abraham. Now, I want you to think about something. When Moses wrote Abraham's story, it covered from chapter 12 in Genesis all the way through to the first part of chapter 25 of Genesis. It took us as a church months and months to cover all that happened to Abraham, and he lived to be 175 years old. Now Isaac, who we've just begun to study, is going to live to be 180 years old. That's, that's longer. And yet, Isaac doesn't get near the coverage that Abraham did. Chapter 26 is the only chapter that is exclusively about Isaac, whereas the rest of Isaac's story is really overshadowed by, by Jacob. So, so, so just think about that. 175 years, 14 chapters for Abraham, 180 years, one chapter for Isaac. There are a lot of different stories that you could tell about a man over the course of 180 years, aren't there? And yet, when Moses tells the story of Isaac, he gives us one chapter, and in that one chapter, almost everything that happens here to Isaac is just a recapitulation of everything that happened to Abraham. So rather than tell us, telling us everything that is unique about Isaac, Moses shows us all the ways that Isaac's life was the same as his father's life. Now, why would an author do that? Well, much like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't tell us everything that happened in Jesus' life, but only those stories which show us that Jesus is Redeemer. The book of Genesis does not tell us everything that happened to Isaac, but only those stories which are essential to telling us about God's redeeming work. And God's redeeming work in Isaac's life is very much like his redeeming work in Abraham's life and in your life. So, so, so what we get is the, the highlights to see God's, God's work. We, we often misunderstand Genesis to be primarily a history book about a people because it does contain history about a people. But it's more like a theological narrative. Genesis is a story about God. So even though we see repeated in Isaac's life many of the same themes from Abraham's life, what we're actually seeing is that from generation to generation, humanity is suffering from the fall of Adam, and yet God is faithful. God's promises remain sure, and the redemptive story continues. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to read our passage through the lens of two ongoing themes in Genesis. Here they are. The first theme is this. The curse continues, but so do the promises of God. And the second theme is this. Human sin continues, 
but so does the mercy of God and the faithfulness of God to his promises. Okay, so those are our two themes, and we'll break them up in their parts. Part one, part A, the curse continues. Now, at the very beginning of the story of redemption, way back in the beginning of Genesis, is God's promise in Genesis 3.15 that there is to come an offspring from the woman who will destroy the serpent and his works. That's the hope. That's the promise. But then, immediately following that, God tells Adam that as a result of his sin, waiting for that promised offspring to come will take place in the midst of difficulty. God told Adam in Genesis 3.17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So that's the context of Genesis. Living life on a cursed earth, knowing that death is coming. That's the human condition as well. That was Adam's condition and Noah's condition and Abraham's and Isaac's and Israel's and yours and mine. But there is, there's the hope, isn't there? The Genesis 3.15 hope. The expectation that one day when the offspring comes and completes his work, the curse will end. So every step along the way, as we work our way through Genesis, we see that, 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 that expectation, the hopeful expectation of the coming offspring, the Messiah. But we also see the latent effects of the curse. And famine is one of the most visible effects of the curse of the ground. Look at verse 1 of our text, Genesis 26.1. Now there was a famine in the land. There's some irony here. In last week's text, Esau, if you'll remember, Esau esteemed his appetite more than the birthright. And that birthright included, in the future, this land. This cursed land that we're now seeing plagued by a famine. And what is particularly troubling about famines is that food is very scarce in famines. And so, so, so what we're seeing is this play on the end of chapter 25 and here at the beginning of chapter 26. It is as if Moses the, Moses the author is saying that from a, from a worldly perspective, from a, from a purely secular perspective, Esau was right. That birthright that would include this land is appearing even more lousy. <laughs> Lentil stew is at least better than a famine. So here is Isaac, son of the promise, and just like his father before him, he must trust in the Lord in the land in the midst of a famine. He must look forward to the light of the blessing that is to come in the midst of the darkness of the curse. And there's, a, there's an application for us here, even just the first part of verse 1. Because as Christians, as we wait for the return of Christ, we wait in the context of a cursed earth. There are still famines. And work is difficult. Paul in Romans 8 says that the earth is groaning as it waits for the freedom from bondage that is to come at Christ's return. That's what we're waiting in. We're waiting in a groaning earth. But that's why I think Isaac is laid out here for us 
as an example. Because when we read Isaac's story, we're reading the story of someone who is, who is very much like you and me. He's living, we're about to see this, he's living in hopeful expectation of what is to come, and he's not doing that perfectly. Not at all. But the famine doesn't destroy his faith. So for you and me, when work, when work becomes difficult, when work becomes scarce, when your pay isn't keeping up with inflation, when for whatever reason providing for your family is difficult, or just yourself, know this. The scorching heat in the cloudless sky of famine does not undermine God's sovereignty or his goodness or his faithfulness to his promises. And those who are deeply rooted in Christ endure these difficulties because their hope is not in the earth. Their hope is in the faithfulness of God in Christ. And that's what we see previewed in these next few verses. Though the curse of the ground is ongoing, so too are the promises of God. Verse 1 tells us that because of the famine... Isaac makes his way south. So wherever he was before, he's gone south into the land of Gerar. Gerar is, is geographically located along the road to Egypt. That's why God gives him that command. Egypt, Egypt does not rely on rains in order to produce crops. So when there's a famine in Canaan, Egypt's still good because they get that yearly flooding of the Nile that you learned about in seventh grade history. Whenever there is a famine in Canaan, there's usually a reliable source of food in Egypt. And it seems to be, based on his geographical progression south, that that's where Isaac is headed. So the Lord appears to him in Gerar, and look what, what he tells him in verse 2. Don't go there. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I will tell you. Sojourn in this land. What the Lord is saying to Isaac is I will provide for you here. Even, even in the midst of famine, I will provide for you here, so don't go to Egypt. And this is, we, we don't quite understand the difficulty of this command. The grass is literally greener on the other side of the desert. And the Lord says, no, 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 stay here in this place of no earthly good. But, but, but God, it's, it's not as if God's commands are arbitrary. His commands are always good. They're always purposeful. His command to Isaac here is not just to be mean. His command is connected to his promise. God's commands are always connected to his promises. So, so look at the second part of verse 3. Here's part 1b of our outline. The promises of God are continuing. First of all, in verse 3, God promises his presence. Look at that. Stay here and I will be with you. I will be with you. There may appear to be greener pastures in Egypt, but the presence of God is in the land with Isaac. And we're going to see this promise of the presence of God repeated a number of times throughout the Bible. We'll see it here. We see, we see it here where God promises Isaac, stay in this land and I will be with you. In the next generation, when Jacob goes away to find a wife and he gets stuck, 
God, God tells him, return to the land and I will be with you. And then in the Exodus, God promises Moses, go to the land, take the people to the land and I will be with you. And then there's the conquest. He promises Joshua in the conquest, conquer the land and I will be with you. And then, and then later on in the book of Judges, in the time of the Judges, he promises Gideon, fight the Midianites in the land and I will be with you. And then we don't see the promise of the presence of God again, not like this. All the way through the Old Testament, all the way to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 19. Jesus, so we're in the new covenant now. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The promise is there. Do you see it? I will be with you. Only there's a difference. Did you notice it? In Christ, the presence of God is no longer tied to the land. Isaac, stay in the land. Jacob, go back to the land. Moses, take the people to the land. Joshua, conquer the land. Gideon, cleanse the land. And in each of these commands, God says, I will be with you in the land. But then we get to Jesus, and he says, go to the nations, away from the land, and I'll be with you, always. It seems, when you get to Christ, at the end of Matthew, it seems that God's presence in Christ is no longer tied to the land. That, that land that Isaac in our text is being commanded to stay with. Why is that? I'm going to show you. But before we get there, we have to see the rest of the promises of God to Isaac. So look at the rest of verse 3 of our text. So I'll be with you and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So God is telling Isaac here why staying in the famine ravished land is important. It is because this seemingly worthless land is the land of promise. God has not forgotten his promise to Abraham. God told Abraham this land would be your offspring's land. And so he's telling Isaac, this is going to be your, your land and your offspring's land. And so what, what God is doing is he's reestablishing his covenant with Abraham, and he's reestablishing that with Isaac. God is saying, essentially, I'm just keeping my promise. And the promise was not just for the land, but also for fruitful offspring, multiple offspring. You see that in verse 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. So essentially, God is saying, stay in this land. I'm going to fulfill the blessing and the land and the offspring promises. All of that is going to be fulfilled here. So you need to stay here. And then comes the most important of the promises. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So, the reason why Jesus Christ told his disciples to go into all the nations of the earth instead of being tied to the land is because Christ is the promised offspring of Isaac, through whom all the nations would be blessed. 
So when you look at the whole arc of the story of redemption, it is at first tied to the land because the promises of God are tied to the people of whom the land are promised, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the ultimate end of the promise was not to keep the blessing in and with Israel. Ultimately, when the promised offspring from Israel arrived, the blessing would go to the ends of the earth. This is what we saw in Galatians a few weeks ago. From, from Pastor Saunders, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham and Isaac might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Isaac is being asked to stay in the land because the land is where the promises will be fulfilled. But ultimately... The Christ who will bless the nations will come from Isaac's family from this land. It's, it's like this. It, it is as if you had the seed to the tree of life. I don't know where you got it, but you got it somehow. And you planted that seed to the tree of life in, in the soil in somebody's field somewhere but you knew it wasn't going to germinate for another thousand years. And so you told your kids, the tree of life is planted in Farmer John's soil out there in Valley Center. And you need to stay near it and do whatever you can to get that land and keep it in the family for the next forever. A long time. Until the tree of life comes. And so, so, so this is how it is. And from generation to generation to generation, the, the, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were to hold the land where the Christ promised the seed of the tree of life was planted. And because God planted the tree of life there, he promised he would be there too, just as he had been with the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. So speaking of Christ, I, was that too much for you? Because I thought that was really cool. <laughs> speaking of Christ though, there's something else I want you to see here. And we've been seeing here that all of the promises to God made to Abraham, Abraham, he's got a new name now, all of those promises are being passed down to Isaac. That's, that's exactly what these first six, five verses are about. Everything that was promised to Abraham goes to Isaac. Now, why do all of these promises go to Isaac? Look at verse five. Look what God tells Isaac. You get the promises Verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So, so Isaac gets the presence of God, the blessings of God, the offspring of God. He gets the inheritance. Why? Because of someone else's obedience. Isaac, as we are about to see, is an anxious and fearful sinner who often follows his appetite instead of the word of God, which is to say, Isaac is like you and me. And yet, because of Abraham's imperfect obedience, Isaac receives the blessing. Brothers and sisters, how much more with Jesus' perfect obedience, how much more do you receive an even greater blessing, an even greater inheritance? This is, this is the gospel. We benefit 
from Christ's work. We are righteous because of Christ's righteousness. We receive eternity because Christ purchased it for us. We are accounted as obedient and worthy to receive the inheritance because Christ was and is perfectly obedient and worthy. That's how we are like Isaac. It's just better. So let's look now and see how Isaac responds to this good news of the gospel that God has just preached to him. Will he say, no, thank you. Or will he continue, uh, or, or will he say no, thank you, and continue on down to Egypt, which is where he was on the way to, presumptively, or will he believe the word of God? Verse 6, so, after hearing what God told him, Isaac settled in Gerar. That means Isaac believed the Lord. In the midst of the curse of the famine, Isaac received the promises with faith and stayed in the land. The promise continues, and yet, Isaac's a sinner. Isaac believes, but he has unbelief. That brings us to our next section, 2a, the sinfulness of man continues. Look with me at verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister, for he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. If you're counting, this is the third time we've seen this lie in Genesis. Once we saw it with Abraham in Egypt. Later we saw it with Abraham here in the same place in Gerar. And here we see it again with Isaac in Gerar. Same guy, Isaac, Gerar, Abimelech. And just the point, what we're seeing, just right after Isaac has received the promises of God and he believes the promises of God, just like Abraham did in chapter 12, he receives the promises of God, believes the promises of God, and then he lies. He doubts the promises of God. Just like his father, Isaac is a sinner. He's a sinner because of his dishonesty. He's a sinner because of his selfishness. He's a sinner because of his disregard for his wife and marriage. He's a sinner because of his fearful unbelief. Though he believed God's word and stayed in the land, he doubted the power of God's presence. God has just told him, I'm going to be with you. I will be with you, which is a sure promise of protection. And yet Isaac essentially says, that's not going to be enough. I don't think you are enough. I'll take care of it. I'll protect myself. So he lies in order to protect his own skin. Friends, we are at our worst when we have a small view of God and a big view of ourselves. Our absolute worst. When we maximize what we think we can accomplish on our own and we minimize God that's when we commit the worst and the most devastating of our sins. We fear man rather than God, and we see our power as men and our abilities as men and women as greater than God's. And it's blasphemous and it's disastrous. Isaac is doing this. He's fearful and he's worried and this leads to sinful deceit and he thinks he's accomplishing something in his own power, protecting himself. But as it turns out, he's not, is he? And it turns out, as is so often the case, his fears are exaggerated and his sinful actions were 
entirely unnecessary. Look at verse 8. When he had been there a long time, that's the setup for what's about to happen. A long time. How long has Isaac been there with Rebekah and nothing happened to Rebekah? A long time. How long? Who knows? Long enough for our author to observe that for a long time, nothing happened to Rebekah. Nobody even tried to touch her. Isaac's fears were unwarranted and his sin was unnecessary. Unnecessary, but not unnoticed. Look at the rest of verse 8. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now that word laughing. Remember, Isaac's name means laughing or laughter. So the Hebrew literally says, Isaac and Rebekah are Isaacing. Now sometimes, sometimes Isaac means laughing. Sometimes it means teasing, as what uh, Ishmael was doing to Isaac. Sometimes it is innuendo, and it means whatever it is that Isaac and Rebekah are doing that led Abimelech to conclude that they are not brother and sister. I will leave what Abimelech saw to your imagination. But, but what Abimelech said, we can't overlook, okay? Because Isaac just got caught in his lie. Verse 9, so Abimelech called Isaac, said, Behold, she's your wife. I, I saw you. You're doing husband and wife things. How could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Isaac's, Isaac's justification for his sin was, look, I had to protect myself. With no thought to his wife or anyone else, I've got to protect myself. But as Abimelech observes, and remember, Abimelech is a pagan king. He's a Philistine, uncircumcised, not part of the covenant, pagan king, and he knows more about sin and the presence of God and the power of God with Isaac than Isaac does. Abimelech observes, Isaac, your sin was putting everyone in harm's way. One of the ways that we do this, one of the ways that we rationalize our sin is that we minimize its impact. We think like Isaac, I'm just protecting myself. I'm just pleasing myself. I'm just doing this for myself. Everybody else is going to be fine. This is no one else's business. No one else is going to get hurt by this. It's something I have to do. And we think it's not that big of a deal because it's for ourselves and we're really important. But the reality is that sin always splatters in these unpredictable, chaotic, unexpected ways. And it always has more victims than we can even know or predict. More, more damage is done by our sin than we can imagine might possibly be done when we're in the heat of the moment, in the moment of sinning. Now, Isaac, he, I think he knows this, but he acts like he doesn't. But Abimelech does know this. He gets it. One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon all of us, meaning the whole nation. 
The guilt would not have been on just the one person who took Rebecca. That's how we think of it as, as Americans. It's just this you know, one person's guilt. No, no, no. This is big. It would have been on the whole nation. Were it not for the merciful protection of God, Isaac's sin could have brought a world of hurt to an entire people group. But Abimelech does not punish Isaac for this. God is merciful to Isaac through Abimelech. Look at verse 11. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. That sounds kind of like the garden. Just observing there, just saw that. That's what Eve said. No, you can't eat it or touch it or else we'll surely die. Well, yet again, despite the sinfulness of God's chosen people, so here's God's chosen people, they're sinful people, God proves himself to be faithful to them. He's faithful to his promises, and he protects Isaac and Rebekah, despite Isaac's sin. Now, the last two times that we saw this happen in Genesis, and we saw it with Abraham, one of the things that I drew out that I think is really important as we're reading Genesis, is they showed you that God's faithfulness does not depend on our sinlessness. And that still holds. I stand by my word on that. If the plans of God to redeem the world were, were dependent on Abraham's goodness, the Bible would have ended in Genesis 12. It would have been over. And if God's plans for redemption were dependent on Isaac's perfect faithfulness, the Bible would end here in chapter 26. And yet, it doesn't. God's plan of redemption continues on through chapter 26. Why? This isn't about Isaac's goodness, is it? It's about God's goodness. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's the point. Del Sarah, we, we are meant to read this. And, and we're not, we're not, we don't just read this and say, man, Isaac got lucky. No, no, no. When, when we read this, we are to read this and be humbled. And to, to read ourselves into Isaac. When we see God's merciful protection of Isaac, despite his sin, we are meant to look back at the mercy of God in our own life. How many times has God spared me from the effects of my sin? More than I know. How many times has God spared me and my family from the full shame of my sin? More than you know. More than I know. More than I would care to think about. This is, this is humbling. But even more wonderful, how fully... Has God forgiven you for your sin? Fully, fully. As far as the east is from the west, which is conceptually infinite. That's how far God has removed your sin from you. He has forgiven you and he has blessed you in Christ. And that's what we see foreshadowed here in Isaac's life. God overlooks Isaac's sin, but later on we learn in Romans, he wasn't just overlooking it, he was going to deal with it in Christ eventually. But God overlooks Isaac's sin for a time and blesses him in the land. This is part 2B, our last part here. Here again, we see God's mercy and grace continuing despite man's sin. Look at verse 12. 
And Isaac sowed in that land. We haven't seen this yet in the Bible. We saw uh, Noah planting grapes. That's the only sowing that we've seen. Isaac sowed in that land. What land? The land of the promise. It didn't belong to him yet. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Now remember the context of this. Verse 1 is, is the lens through which we read all this. So he's sowing in a land of what? A famine. He's sowing in the land of promise in the famine of verse 1. Isaac thought he needed to leave the land. God said, no, stay here. I'll take care of you here. And despite Isaac's foolishness, despite his sin, God did take care of him, didn't he? He got a hundredfold return. One hundredfold return on the investment in God's promise. One hundredfold blessing is the proof that we are meant to see. This is the proof of God's faithfulness to his promises. This is the proof of God's provision for Isaac in the land. Now, we have a surprising New Testament parallel to this. We read it in our uh, scripture, New Testament scripture reading earlier. Thank you, Christian. In, in the ministry of Jesus, he tells the story where a rich man comes up to Jesus and asks, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, keep the law. The man says, I have kept the law. Now, no, no, notice there in that passage, that man kept the law, even the law about being honest. Right? That man was a law keeper. And so he's essentially more righteous than Isaac in our story. Isaac failed to keep the law. The rich young ruler has succeeded and yet, in the rich young ruler's story, Jesus sees into his heart. He sees something in his heart that is deficient. Though he is a law keeper, his heart is devoted to the things of the world. His heart is trusting in the things of the world rather than God. And so Jesus says, sell all that you have. Give the proceeds to the poor. And the man can't do it. He can't do it because his God is his wealth. And so he walks away sorrowful. And that's when you get that famous statement that everyone's heard. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom. And the disciples are like, what just happened? They're astonished. They're confused. Because in their minds, not only is this man rich, which is a sign of God's blessing, because they've read Genesis 26, but he's also a lawkeeper. So he's better than Isaac. What more could there be that this man needs in order to enter the kingdom? And then Peter starts to get this little spark off the flint in his heart. This little glimmer of understanding. Oh, wait. Whoa, Jesus. Whoa. Maybe it's not about law-keeping and wealth. Maybe this is about trusting God and his promises in Christ. There's no fire yet. There's, there's, there's no light, no heat. But there's something. There's little sparks there. And Peter says, Jesus, wait. We've left everything. We left everything behind to follow you. And then what Jesus says is shocking. Because there is some Isaac stuff in what Jesus says in Matthew 19.29. He says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So there's the hundredfold blessing. What's the connection? Well, when Isaac gave up the security of what would have been 
in Egypt, in order to trust the Lord in the famine-ridden land of promise, that is to say, when he gave up the vision of the world or the hope of the promises of God, Isaac received a hundredfold return. And what Jesus is teaching is that following him is akin to what Isaac did when he trusted the Lord. Jesus isn't like creating a new religion here. You understand that? Christianity is not like a different religion. It's the fulfillment of what we see in the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment. So Jesus is taking those events of the Old Testament and showing their fulfillment. He's teaching us that following him is akin, it's like what Isaac did when he trusted the Lord. So see, there's a way to invest ourselves in the things of the world. Things that appear to be sources of security and comfort and joy. That's the way to Egypt. Trusting in wealth and the things that we can see. Alternatively, there is the way of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There is the way where we entrust ourselves to Christ. The promise of Abraham. And at first, it does not appear to be wise or safe to do this. But the, but the reality is the way of Christ is the more certain investment. The promises of God in Christ are the hidden treasure buried in an otherwise worthless looking field in Valley Center. So, so Jesus tells his disciples, follow Christ and receive the true treasure, the hundredfold treasure. Question though, because we are seeing this in Genesis and seeing fulfillment of it in Christ. And I know you're wondering this. If you're not, at least Joel Osteen is. Does this mean that if you follow Christ, you will receive the same earthly riches that Isaac did? Look again at the passage in Genesis 26. Let's look at verse 12. The Lord blessed him. So you get the hundredfold blessing, and the Lord blessed him, and then verse 13, and the man became rich and gained more and more, and you just keep saying, and more and more, until he became very wealthy. He had possession of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. So Isaac has received a hundredfold return on his crops, and that's real crops, flax and barley and vegetables and lentils and food to eat. And the blessing of God seen as wealth in verse 13 is also real. It's real material blessing. Isaac became very wealthy in flocks and herds and servants. Those aren't metaphors. Those are real things. Things that the earthly people are envious of. They envied him so much that as we read in verse 16, they asked him to leave. He had so much. He'd become so powerful in possessions. They said, this is too dangerous. You can't be here. With all of that, you need to leave. So is Isaac's material blessing the same hundredfold blessing that Jesus says you get when you give up lands and houses and family to follow him? No. No. In the story of redemption, Isaac's blessings came in the form of earthly abundance, meant to show that God was going to do something in that land of promise. It wasn't worthless. 
Those earthly blessings were the first sprouts of blessing that this land of promise would provide. But as we're going to see next week, even in that earthly abundance, it brought a world of trouble for Isaac. Isaac's water supply is going to be under constant threat. The land has potential. God has shown that. Trust in the Lord. There's potential here. There's something big is going to happen here. But there's still trouble there now. But that land that Isaac was being asked to stay in would one day, not yet, but one day would bring the Christ, the ever-satisfying bread of life, the ever-flowing river of life that cannot be stopped up by the enemies of God. Christ is the true hundredfold blessing of the land. Isaac's riches are a shadow of what is to come in Christ. So for you, when you give up your love of the world and the things of the world and the security of the world, when you finally realize that Egypt is not all it's chalked up to be in exchange for Christ, you will find that he is to be preferred over all of the riches of the world. Which is why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. 